thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey, everyone. It's Garrett. Uh, we had a very interesting episode today. We got to interview my, uh, what did I say, Sean? Mary or cousin by marriage? husband. Yeah. So my cousin's husband. So maybe cousin by marriage. I don't know exactly how the family tree works in that regard. But uh, they're living over in Melbourne, Australia. And he is a greyhound trainer. And it was just very interesting to hear his side and how he trains the dogs. Um, not only that, he kind of had a rough childhood. Got into an almost fatal car accident uh, when he was 19. Lost his mom and his dad pretty close together. So he faced a lot of adversity growing up, but he never let it phase him. And you'll you'll hear in the interview, he just talked about how he really used all that as motivation or, um, you know, didn't let him or didn't let it get to him. And he just continued to go on with life and continue to find ways to surround himself with people that were going to make him better. And ultimately, he's been very successful. Uh, Sean, what did you think of Michael? Michael inspired me to want to interview people from all around the world. I mean, it was just cool, the little nuances. Obviously, he tells a, a little story about, you know, you want the good people in your life are the ones who would help you when you run out of gas on the side of the road. He's like, you know, your best friends are going to come help you when you run out of petrol. And just little things like that are always fun. But Greyhound racing is just something that it doesn't get any attention over here in the States. And it's really cool to see how big it is over there and how big it is in his life. He has a lot of similar outlooks on things that we do, which I also thought was cool. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk to him. Yeah. The coolest thing for me is you could just hear the passion in his voice when he talked about the racing and he talked about his dogs and his wife, Des or his wife, Debbie, I just love being able to hear the passion of Sean mentions the little nuances for me. I loved his accent. Like it just made me so happy hearing that Australian accent. Um, obviously yeah. they're family to me, but I don't stay in super close touch with them. We're, we're in touch here to there, but it was really cool getting to talk to them again and get to know him more on a, a personal uh, level. Let's kick it on over to Michael Booley. The Colorado Rampage are excited to announce a player development partnership with Power Edge Pro Hockey. PEP's reactive countering training concept is the type of innovative skill development that will greatly impact our organization. Developing players to the next level is the Colorado Rampage's number one priority, and incorporating PEP hockey into our training will help us get there. Visit their website at corampage.com. That's C-O-R-A-M-P-A-G-E.com. Be better today than you were yesterday and join the herd. Today's guest is talking to us from across the Pacific Ocean as he resides in Melbourne, Australia. When he was just 13, he was ranked eighth in all of New Zealand for tennis. Now later in life, he's a very accomplished chef, but in Australia, he's one of the most recognized up-and-coming greyhound trainers. We are very excited to be joined by Michael Booley. Hey guys, how you doing? Good, Michael. How are you? Good, Garrett. Michael, what was it like growing up in New Zealand, and how how did you get started in uh, training greyhounds? Uh, my dad always loved the greyhounds um, back in the England days, and then he we he moved to New Zealand with mum and my brother and myself, and um, just had a little soft spot for them over there. But when we come to Australia, we got a lot more serious uh, and um, dabbled in a few dogs, and then uh, I got into it in a big way in about 1993 and had a couple of really good ones. And then, um, cause I got a couple of good ones. I just sort of 
got a bit uh, complacent after they finished racing and um, thought fast dogs were going to come along all the time. And um, that's not the case. So, and then I got a bit lazy and then decided to venture into other things in life um, and then got back into the dogs about three years ago and uh, having a lot of fun doing it now. Awesome. How old were you when you got into uh, the racing? Uh, about 18 or 19. Okay. You faced a lot of challenges in your life and you've always found a way to overcome them. When you were just 19, you were involved in an almost fatal car crash. Can you tell us about this night and how it changed you? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, being probably a typical young teenager, I used to like to drink a lot and, um, being very silly and stupid, I decided to drive home. And, um, after having way too much to drink, I just, I drove home and, uh, I was only about two kilometers from home and I, fell asleep at the wheel and took out about 30 feet of guardrail. And fortunately for me, where I crashed, there was a big uh, lake underneath the, the guardrail and the car um, went straight into the water and submerged to the bottom. Um, as I woke up, didn't even think of anything, uh, unwound, just wound down my window and swam to the top, not realising I'd just been in a really bad car crash, um, not knowing till later the next day how bad it really was when I went back and saw it all. So um, that was scary. How yeah, this... that's some great instincts too, to know to, you know, roll the window down and get out of there. Was the car floating or did it sink to the bottom? No, the car sank to the bottom. Um, it's probably because I was drunk, whereas I didn't panic. Um, and I wake up and just wound the window down um, and swam out. Um, wow. If I had a push button window, uh, I wouldn't be here now. Um, uh, with technology, the water would have uh, made all the electronics not work. And um, luckily I had a wind down window and just swam out and swam to the top. Um, so in a way, alcohol saved my life, but it also made me, uh, from that day onwards, I just said, I'm never going to drink seriously again. I have a social one, a beer here and there, but uh, I've never really had a massive drink ever again. So it made you change your lifestyle after that traumatic event? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's just like something like drinking too much alcohol because you want to be a part of a cool crowd and then um, trying to do something stupid driving home, which is an absolute no-no. Um, I did that thought you, and you think you're invincible when you're younger and um, it nearly cost me my life. And from that day onwards, I said, I'm never drinking ever again or getting in a car with anyone who's been drinking. And to this day, I haven't done that either. So, but it's, it was, Scary. At the time, I didn't panic, but um, when I went back and saw the car and I saw what I did, uh, that was really scary. Me and Sean talk about it all the time, but unfortunately, sometimes we learn our hardest lessons after facing, uh, you know, certain hardship or bad decisions. And I think sometimes the biggest life lessons we learn have to come from, you know, something terrifying like that or um, big mistakes. But luckily, nothing came of it. You're still here today, and we're grateful to have you. Um, another tragic point in your life, you lost your mom. How did you cope with this loss? And, you know, what were some of the events that happened after your mom had passed? Um, she was young. She only, she was 48. Uh, and she died of breast cancer. Um, still think of her every day. Um, uh, she'd be, oh, she'd be 79 or something now. Because uh, I was only like 19 or 20 when she passed, um, but it just 
it makes you it sounds horrible but when she passed you you, you seem to appreciate your parents more um you don't realize what you've got until they're actually gone um and it's a hard lesson in life to lose your parents at like 19 or 20. um my dad passed away probably six or seven years later um and he him and her were together for forever so i think eventually he died of a broken heart um and I got to be a lot closer to my dad after mum passed away because um, I was really close to my mum. Um, but she she just instilled good ethics into me and I, him, my dad and I probably had the best seven or eight years of our life together after she passed away, um, before he passed away. So um, it's just be good to your parents and, and never take anything for granted was how I sort of look at that. And I'd always tell people who've still got their parents today to just appreciate your parents because you just never know when they're going to go. Wow, it's such a young age to have to go through that. But like Garrett said, unfortunately, you do learn good lessons out of those hardships. And I'm sure that it's helped you with your current relationships. You know, maybe you, oh. you appreciate your wife a little bit more just because you know how precious life is. Absolutely. She's uh, my wife, Debbie, who I've been married to for 10 years. And um, I've been with her for seven years before that. Um, She's still got her beautiful mum here. Uh, her dad passed away a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and um, I become really close to her dad. Um, and she's she's a, in a family of six, and she's the youngest. And I said to her, "You're just so lucky to have your mum and dad alive when while he was still alive." So, um, and she's got uh, her oldest sister, I think, is in her sixties. So to have their parents still going at that age, I just was like, "You guys are blessed to have still be alive and see them at this age." Yeah. That's another great point though, too, is you can always find people who are like family. Like for instance, I feel very blessed. I'm an only child and Garrett's been living with me. You know, he moved out here when we were 15, 16 years old. And now eight years later, he, he is like a brother to me. So even yeah. though he's not direct blood family, there are people who can be just as close. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those people, uh, to find someone like, like that, you just, you've got to cherish them forever. Um, you, it's no point. You can have people come into your life because you might do something that they think, Oh, I want to know him because he's uh, like, you guys like a hockey player, but um, you don't need folks, friends like that. You need people who are just true to true to true to life and help you with anything at any time of the day. Um, maybe two o'clock in the morning, you might, you're coming home from somewhere and run out of petrol and a, a good friend will come and help you and get you out of, out of the jam. So um, fake friends won't do that. I think that's a great point too, is, you know, with our lives, I think the biggest thing that I've started to learn to cherish is the relationships that you have with people because, you know, me and Sean are obviously athletes and we love uh, playing our sport um, hockey and we care a lot about wins and losses, but I've realized at the end of the day, like, over the years, I don't necessarily remember all the wins or all the losses. If you win a championship, obviously that's a memorable thing and that's a small thing to have. But over time, the biggest thing that I remember from my teams is the relationship I've built with those guys and kind of the culture and the surrounding circumstances. They either made it very fun for me to go to the rink every day and be around um, yeah. or they made it miserable. And I think that it really just depended on the type of the people that were surrounding you. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like, and those kind of friends, like you'll probably get together in 20 years time and have, have a good laugh and about the good times you had as, um, as a team back, back today or back yesterday. Whereas uh, when you've got 
false friends, they come and they go, but the good people will stick by with you forever. Um, uh, and it's just, you, having people like that is just, it's, it's just something you can't buy. It's precious. Shortly after your mom passed, you were offered a job in another state of Australia. And to help escape that emotion, you decided to take the offer and completely move your life across the country. What happened in the first couple of months there that caused you to pack up and head back to Melbourne? Uh, I'm very a pri- very private person, um, and I don't like to get people involved in stuff that belongs close to me. Like my mum passing, I didn't. I let my emotions build up way too much, and I just I had anger inside for a long time, and, and um, I would probably be horrible to work with, and I'd snap at people, um, and. The guys who, they took advantage of me when they realised my mum passed away. They saw it as an opportunity because I was going really good as, as a chef. And um, they had this pub up in uh, New South Wales, which is about eight hours from Victoria, um, eight to ten hours. And I was there for two to three months and everything was going good. And then all of a sudden, um, this guy brought something up. I can't remember what exactly it was about, but he said something along, my oh, people just take something to do and something close to me about my mum and um it just made me snap and I just turned around and said have you experienced this kind of thing? and he he said no I just going what well, people have done this and people have done it. I said mate until you understand what's going on you shouldn't really put things out there and um it just it made my emotions go like fireworks and I exploded and I said mate I can't have someone like you telling me how to live life and doing certain things when you don't know how to experience it yourself and um I just I just went bananas at him and gangbusters and said, look, I can't work for someone like you and just said, I'm out of here and um, packed up and drove back down to Victoria the next day. What did, what did you learn about yourself during this process? It's obviously a really big decision to have to move out on your own at that young of an age. Yeah, uh, the thing, uh, get people around you who are close to you, um, trust them. Uh, and get them to trust you and um, it's not it's you shouldn't bottle everything up Uh, you can let your emotions out to people you trust and who you love and you can tell them how you're feeling Um, and uh, that's what I eventually did but before that I just let all my emotions build up and I didn't want to tell anyone stuff how I was feeling about my mum passing away and um, yeah it just made me um, believe in people that were close to me that I could trust them without having to tell them lies or stuff that I was doing okay. I think it's a important thing too, is that you learned from that uh, bad experience too, and you moved on from it, right? You, you learned about yourself personally, but you learned about others as well. You mentioned that you felt uh, taken advantage of and unfortunately, unfortunately there are people like that in our world today and we have to be cautious of those, but when your emotions were like that, I feel like your uh, consciousness was a little clouded probably. Um, yeah. And it probably took you a little bit to understand what was fully going on, but good for Absolutely. you to realize that people were taking advantage of you and that wasn't a situation or people you want to surround yourself with. Yeah. It's it, being that being young and losing your parents. So like it makes you grow up quicker. Um, not that you want to, you're still sort of you're young and you want to live life and, and have a good laugh. But, um, when your parents aren't there, you sort of have to sort of grow up and become a bit more mature, a bit quicker. Um, and you look at life differently and you look at people differently. And then, um, 
it just made me trust people a lot more um, who were close to me rather than just stay away from them and not really tell them anything. Um, and that's and and that's how I am today with the people who I'm around. Switching lanes a little bit here, you were around 23 when you started training dogs, and after four to five years, you decided to walk away. Why? Uh, got into the dogs training, uh, and I was really lucky to get my first two dogs were city dogs, uh, which means over here in Australia, you have city class, provincial class, and low class, and these dogs were really good. Um, and that doesn't happen very often. My first two dogs, both one in the city, uh, and I'm thinking this is really easy to train greyhounds and um, go forward a couple of years after the racing career is finished. Uh, I just was expecting all my next bunch of dogs to be as, just as good, but unfortunately they were slow and um, I struggled to win races, struggled to even be competitive against other dogs with them. And um, I started to cut corners and become lazy and thinking, well, this isn't the way to do it. And I'm just going to be lazy. And eventually I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I um, just sort of gave up um, knowing it's not, uh, it's not me. It was just the dogs that I had. I was blessed to have good ones at the time. So, and then unfortunately slow ones come along and it, uh, it makes you realize it's, it's not as easy as what it is. Yeah. You talk about having those fast dogs and the slow dogs, how much of, your training goes into making a champion and how much of just, you know, a naturally fast dog? Uh, the dogs have got the ability from the start. Um, uh, being a trainer, it just, you just put the polish on them uh, and you keep them safe and sound, feed them well, keep them, keep them healthy. Uh, and you know the ability that your dogs have got. Um, one of my first dogs, a dog called Casey's King, I took him up to Sydney for a big young age classic race and I got taken out into the car park by one guy and he had five guys with him in black suits and they opened the boot of a Mercedes Benz with a hundred thousand dollars cash and said, we take the dog now and um, this money's yours. And I was only like 21, 22 at the time. And I'm like, wow, I've never seen that much money. Um, and I thought if you can offer that kind of money, I can win more with the dog. And um, it's a lesson I, I learned to regret because if someone offers you that kind of money, it's a lot, it's a lot of work to that, win that kind of money. I kind of see the flip side of that coin though, too. I, I really respect you for betting on yourself because I yeah. think that that's something in life. The only person who's going to help you is you. And you said, you know, I can take the easy way out or, Hey, I have an opportunity here to make even more money. So I really respect that you bet on yourself. Yeah. And, and it's easy to say down the track, I could have, I should have sold the dog. Um, if it happened today, I would analyze it a lot more than what I did on, on that night at, in Sydney. Um, but uh, in saying that, we still won races with the dog. We never won as much money as we were offered, but uh, I learned a lot. I learned how to become a better trainer with that kind of dog too. What did you do next? Like after training dogs, when you, when you uh, left training dogs, you were out for, I believe 17 years. What were you doing in the meantime? I met Debbie. Um, uh, I just wanted to do other things. Uh, we, I ended up meeting Debbie, who's my future wife, and we got together and we enjoyed life. We travelled. Um, and so we got to meet our American family, um, uh, who you know of, Garrett. <laughs> um, and uh, we just travelled and had a lot of fun. Uh, and then the straw came. We bought an apartment in the, in the city in Melbourne. And 
we were watching TV and we we're watching a lot of dog races. And Debbie said to me, she didn't like where we lived. And she said, would you like to get back into training? And I go, I'd love to. So, um, and especially seeing the same people were winning races that were training dogs when I was training 15, 17 years ago. Um, we ended up uh, purchasing a Greyhound property uh, about an hour out of Melbourne. And then we got back into it and we've been going ever since. That's awesome. Yeah, a little bit of context for the listeners out there. Uh, Michael and Debbie. Debbie is my cousin. Uh, they came out here to the United States. What was it? The summer of 2015 was the first time I met you guys? 15, yes. Yeah. 2015. Right. And then my parents were just out there last summer. Yeah, they came. They were here last April. Yep, last April. Um, so it's the first time I've ever met some of my Australian family. My grandma was from Australia and she was here in the States, my, my grandpa and grandma met during World War II. Yeah, there you go. There's a photo the with Garrett's mum and dad. We won a race at Sandown, one of the metropolitan tracks in Victoria. Uh, and that's with um, Garrett's mum and dad in the photo with, with Debbie and I and the owners. Yep, good times. I've still yet to go to Australia. So hopefully here in the near future, I'll be out that way. Awesome. That'll be good. You're, you're welcome here. As you know, the family all out here will look after you. That's good. Yeah, good. After 17 years away from training, you decided to come back. What led to your return? Uh, basically, we moved, like I said, we moved to an apartment in the city and we both worked in the city. So it was convenient for our work style and uh, our lifestyle. Um, and we used to play poker a lot and we'd go to the Crown Casino and play poker. And then um, eventually, by watching the dog races uh, on the TV, I kept seeing the same people winning races all the time that I raced against that I was beating back 15, 17 years ago. And Debbie hated the apartment from day one. So um, she saw an opportunity for us to get out of there and said, why don't you look at getting a greyhound farm and we'll go out and start training dogs again. And, um, and that's what we did. Garrett actually told me a pretty good story about your dog training. If I can jog your memory, uh, you take the dogs to McDonald's after races, right? Yeah, I do. And um, uh, the one who wins gets an ice cream cone. They get an, they get an ice cream cone if they run first, second, or third. But if they win, uh, they get an ice cream cone and like a cheeseburger or a Big Mac is a little reward. So um, it's, it's like anything. You, you can't just uh go to say the track and run around and get no reward it's like with you guys uh being professional athletes you you win something i'm sure you guys get a reward or get looked after um and you've got to do the same with the dogs you've got to keep them on their toes um keep them happy uh, and making them uh giving them a reward like that makes them try harder next time they race can you see this can you see it yeah yeah we can see dogs eating ice cream <laughs> yeah that's the best. that's the hamburger that's oh funny. that's awesome so there was one dog who who won a lot, but actually had an injury on during a race and wasn't able to finish the race, but you still offered them the cheeseburger, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, dog broke his hock, uh, never going to race again. So um, he gets the reward because he's tried, but he's, uh, when I say a hock, that's like his, um, his lower leg, uh, like the ankle, but... Uh, because grains have so many bones connected to each each part, um, he just couldn't come back. No, sorry, the race career is short too, and uh, a broken hock can take up to six to eight months, and sometimes they just don't come back. And unfortunately, this one didn't. 
my dad said with that dog you took him to McDonald's after and he was so used to winning all the time and eating <laughs> the ice cream or the cheeseburger and he hadn't won and didn't finish the race and you try to give him an ice cream and he wouldn't eat it. No, he, they, they're, actually, they're really smart. Um, you take them to the track, you do what they do and uh, when they win, it's funny because they seem to know what the golden arches look like. But um, <laughs> that night, I think we had two or three dogs in and uh, the dog that didn't run anywhere, we still got him an ice cream and he just didn't want to take it because he knew he didn't win. So he's really competitive. Yeah, that's amazing. Since your return to training, the road has not always been straight. There have been up and ups and downs, including having your only client pull all of his dogs out from your training to give to another trainer. How frustrated were you during this time and what did you learn from that process? Uh, yeah, that was that was a real kick in the teeth. Um, he, I'd known him from uh, the days that we would play poker at Crane Casino and he'd followed us and one night at one of the local tracks, we won three races on the one night and he got in touch with us and said, I'd like you to train some dogs. I'll buy some for you. Um, and so he ended up buying us some uh, nice dogs. And uh, unfortunately, two or three of them got injured and they were taking a fair while to come back. Um, and one dog I had, a, she won her first six starts for me. Um, and that was the flip side. But uh, he just come to me one day from... Um, other people saying they can do a better job than what I was doing. And um, he just took all the dogs away just like that. And um, uh, it's, it's been a good, good flip side though, because I've got to meet newer people and I'm training dogs for different people who I trust. And um, it's, it's a, it's a very flippant industry where people will just listen to too many others. And yeah, um, but these people I'm with now, if I if he was still with me now, I wouldn't be with them and I've got some really good dogs coming through. I love that you use it as a blessing in disguise. I'm sure at the time you were very frustrated. Like you said, it was a kick in the teeth. But to me, obviously, I'm not a, a trainer racing dogs, but I think it'd be better to have, you know, dogs from five to four to five different owners instead of just one, just in case something does happen like that again, where if an owner does pull his dogs, that's you don't have everything invested in the one person and just his dog sold it. So I think realistically it was a blessing in disguise. And again, at the time you may have not known it, but now looking back, hindsight's always 2020. Oh, absolutely. It's um, by doing that, we've sort of branched out and got to know a lot more people. Uh, we've just um, had a, a bitch whelp some pups and she's had 10 pups and Debbie sold them all within one day of being born. And uh, the all with people we know and trust close to us uh, and I'm going to get first chance to train them in another 18 months time so um, and all these people we know we trust and that's another avenue we've got down the track at the moment I've got other people here I'm training dogs for and they've got more dogs coming through for me as well whereas with one person you've got to hope that they do the right thing and give you the right dogs but with having four or five different owners uh, it's it's a lot more stress-free in a way are all of the dogs that you train owned by other people or have you ever had your own dogs compete we've had our own dogs uh but it's i've got uh, 18 kennels where i am and it's um different grades of dogs and you've just got to sort of when the time comes when they get older they either retire and they go into a greyhound adoption program or they um, go back to their owners and they live life out as pets uh, or 
sometimes people will sell their dogs if they get given too good an offer to refuse. Um, and the good owners I've had, they they sort of sling me along the way. So if someone sold a dog for ten thousand. He gave me thousand dollars just as a little thank you for what I what I'd done with this dog up until he sold it. To me, I like to compare greyhound racing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's very similar to horse racing in the sense that, you know, you have trainers, you have owners, uh, you kind of have sponsors, and obviously the races are very similar. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, absolutely. Just horses is on a larger scale, um, popular-wise, money-wise, compared to the greyhounds. But in Australia, uh, we have the gallops, the greyhounds, and the harness, and greyhounds is the number two code after the gallops, which is really good. We were talking before a little bit, and you said that COVID's been a little bit crazy over there. So how has that affected you with the dogs now with the races and stuff like that? Uh, luckily, Greyhound Racing Board have been fantastic with the way that they've gone their procedures. Uh, we're still racing today, um, whereas a lot of industries have shut down here in Australia, in Melbourne especially, and we have to have uh, screen testing, temperature te checks before we can go to the track. Uh, no owners are allowed to go to the track because um, we don't want anyone with an infection or something catching something because if one person got caught in the greyhounds, it would shut the whole industry down. So the only people allowed on track are the handlers and uh, stewards and race callers, people who need to be there. Um, and luckily we've had no cases in the gray, Greyhounds or the races since uh, COVID came along. You mentioned coming over to the United States to visit family. What were some of the things that surprised you when you visited that are different from your lifestyle in Australia? Uh, being a prob probably a typical person, you look at America as the place to go. Um, but you so when you go to a different country, everything is just different. The you guys drive on the wrong side of the road. Um, you guys better. are on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> <don't know> about <laughs> that. Um, okay, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you there. Um, but uh, the the food is different. Um, looking for certain things to try to find prices are different. Uh, when we first came to America, the Australian dollar was actually really strong and it was worth one we could get one dollar and five american um but the last time we went there was like 65 cents so the first time we went there we shopped and we just bought an absolute truckload of stuff because it was cheaper than what you could get in australia but um the the whole it's it's adapting you to your country uh your your suburbs are set up different um uh you've got different kinds of you guys have a lot of trucks on the road uh, as in the uh, SUV trucks um, yeah, guns we don't really have guns in Australia it's amazing how many people have guns in America uh, some um, yeah you just you just never know like uh, with someone you could be walking along and they could have a gun next to you so um, it's it's and the media sort of beats up a lot of stuff too about how you have a perception of the country but because we were with family in America, we was we were a lot safer than what you probably would be by yourself. Yeah, this is probably a misconception, but uh, I've heard that over in Australia, kangaroos are kind of like deer in America. They're just they're everywhere. They're in your backyards and all that. Is that true? Uh, if you go out to remote areas, they, there are a lot more kangaroos. But um, 
they're the national emblem of Australia, but um, it's it's probably probably you're probably right. It's uh, more a more a myth than anything else. If we were to come to Australia, similar to what my parents did, what would be something that you would show us that uh, you know speaks a lot to you and shows a lot about the culture in Australia? Uh, first, we'd get all the family together um, and let everybody. Uh, show you the family spirit of uh, the families and opening their arms to you um, and showing the hospitality and then and then we'd uh, get you to have some Vegemite and a meat pie to start with um, which a lot of people don't don't uh, like really but um, that's Australian. Can you elaborate on what the Vegemite and meat pie is because I know Sean doesn't know my dad explained it to me but Vegemite is like a black molasses tar of, pe of like peanut butter but it's a black molasses tar version and it's gross <laughs> um uh it's very australian um this is a, this is what they call vegemite uh that's that's a jar there looks um, like nutella yeah but it's nowhere near like nutella that's it there. it's like a black molasses i've heard a lot of australians say that vegemite is gross why are you guys so proud of it if it's not good Ah, oh, it's, I don't know, it's just something that uh, Australians sort of like to brag about, I suppose. It's, a, it's an Australian product and um, uh, they just love it. But um, a lot of Australians don't like it either. So, but. Um, and then what was the meat pie? The meat pie is like, it's a, it's a pastry and it's got a meat filling inside and it's a, the pastry is cooked to its crusty and nice golden brown. And you just get to put tomato sauce on it or ketchup and then bite into it. And it's just, it's yum. It's delicious. So they give you one bad thing and one good thing to go. Yeah. Wait, a, past a pastry like a dessert with meat in it? No, it's a savory pastry. Savory okay. pastry. But it's, you have to, if you come to Australia, you have to have a meat pie. What kind of meat's in the meat pie? Mince, beef mince. But you, oh. can, you can get different, uh, you can have kangaroo, you can have um, chicken. That's uh, one my dad had. It had kangaroo in it. That's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, they do. They they try a lot more things now. But the meat pie with basic beef mince is the main is the main one. Um, but places now try and go a bit fancy and do different uh, variations of a meat pie. What's kangaroo like? Is it similar to a chicken? Oh, no, it's kangaroo's horrible. It's, oh. not <laughs> it's not my cup of tea. Um, it has to be cooked rare otherwise if you, if you cook it too much it's uh it's dry and tough and horrible and it's, it's got a gamey taste to it as well so you've got to really like the gamey kind of food we just wanted to hear a little bit more about the culture and obviously we've never been over there so it's cool to hear your side of it uh one last question we love to ask our guests is what advice would you give to someone looking to get into training animals uh look to Go to your local track uh, and go and see who the successful people are and don't be afraid to go and ask questions and learn because you can never stop learning. Uh, it's um, If you think you know everything, it's time to get out, in my opinion. Uh, I've been training for over 20 years on and off and um, I still go and ask people questions today. Uh, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And just, just go and ask the successful people what do you do or ask some questions to learn. And... Uh, and that's the only way you can sort of teach yourself more and more. 
you can always learn from others. That's something that we've really enjoyed from doing this podcast is every time we have someone on, you know, we ask that similar question of everyone. We get different answers every time. We love learning from everyone. And another question I had for you is how is the relationship as a animal trainer different from like a pet owner? Because I can see it going both ways where it's more affectionate because you spend more time with them, like working with them, but also, you know, you are working them. You're not just kind of, you know, scratching them here and there. Yeah. Um, as a racing animal to a trainer, it's you've got to look at them as sort of like a business partner and um, you've got to keep them fit and healthy, whereas the pet side of it, you let them do whatever they want. They run around the house. We've got one now. We've got an old girl. She's eight and she just lives the life in the house. She comes in. She sleeps at nighttime in the house. Um, she eats half the food we eat. She eats pizzas, burgers, pasta. She eats everything. So, I assume it, I assume you have a greyhound. Yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, we can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been great to hear more about your story and uh, the adversities that you've overcome. We're very proud to have known you and uh, wish you all the success in the racing world. Um, hopefully we see some more news headlines of you and your dogs winning more races here soon. Thank you, Garrett. That's awesome.